0: And welcome. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I am your host on this our weekly radio show, Visual Workplace Radio, our show where we explore and celebrate the principles and practices, concepts and tools, methods and strategies, people and results of workplace visuality, where we celebrate letting the workplace speak. This is both the how and the why and the what and the when. All in one show. If you stay with us long enough, we'll give you all those answers. Welcome. We are in the midst of our series on visual leadership. I think this is our fifth show. We probably have another five to go quite easily. This isn't just talking about leadership. This is really putting leadership on uh, a course, operationalizing it, Figuring out, mapping out, how do you make leadership effective? And how do you make us as leaders effective? What can visuality contribute to turning people who are currently hoping to be good leaders, but in truth are actually simply managers? How can we help? How can visuality help make that transition? Well, amazingly, I've discovered that visuality is uniquely qualified to do this because it is a an amalgamation, a combination, beautiful parallel set of two powerful forces. One of them is our natural need to know through seeing. This is that part that goes 50% of our brain function is dedicated to seeing and interpreting visual data. This is involuntary. It is a natural state, a natural condition of our mind. It is the way our mind functions. And the impact of what we see of information that is shared when and as we need it, the impact on our psyche, on our mentality, on our personality, on our sense of powerfulness, or in its negative, powerlessness, when information is not available to us when and as we need it. It is not just frustrating, it is frightening. It doesn't just make us angry, it makes us fearful. It changes our behavior. Visuality is a behavioral model in its presence, and a negative behavioral model in its absence, we live and organize ourselves around data that we can see, that is available to us at a glance, at a pull, when we need it. So much so for operators, but also no less so for leaders. Leaders need that too. It is one of the reasons why they ask for so many reports because this is the familiar mechanism for getting information. But in fact, it turns out to be not that effective. It turns out to be a flood of data and no meaning, a flood of information and no context for it. A leader who cannot access data is weakened by that, but a leader who accesses too much data is confused by that. The thing that the quantity, the quality, the condition, the mm, characteristic of visuality that makes it so qualified to help leaders is that the leader can design his visual space He can design the information that he needs to be available to him at a pull, and he can get it. What that supports is the ability of a leader to do his full-time job, which is to decide. That's the first part of being a leader. That's the first part of leading, deciding. So we are in currently in examining visual leadership in my ten doorway model. We're at doorway four. i've I've spoken about this almost every time we've gotten together so far on leadership. Doorway four is building from the bottom up. It's about metrics, your measurement systems. It's about problem solving, hopefully visual problem solving, and it's about hotion or alignment and we are currently unnesting the whole top level. This is tricky to do, even if I've got you for seven days in a row and I can map out this universe of information sharing. It's tricky to do because it really is a holistic um, framework. In other words, it has dimensionality in every direction. And it is not a linear model. Another way of saying it's not a linear model is to say it is a growth model. So basically, in a holistic model, you can choose any part. You can learn it and practice it and get skilled at it and master it. And that will help you grow. And you can take another element and grow that piece. You don't have to grow this in a lockstep manner. This is not, becoming a leader is not a cookie cutter venture. It is a growth model. In that way, it's very forgiving. In that way, it's very supportive. In that way, it's available to all of us. How executives and supervisors, and I put, as you know, supervisors and managers together in a single group As executives and managers use visuality to grow themselves, they also learn to govern, to direct, and to limit both themselves and others. They use resources wisely. They learn to lead. Okay? This is the deployment phase of leadership, but it is also the identity phase. Many business owners, many CEOs, plant managers, GMs, they struggle with their role as leader. They struggle with effectiveness. They can maintain their business, but can they grow it? Can they lead it? Can they seek higher, more diverse, and more, if you will, profitable or important outcomes The first error is that many do not make a sharp distinction between maintaining and leading. It kind of gets mushed in together and turns out to be mostly maintaining or managing. And that means trouble, both for the company and its need to compete and survive and prevail, and for the leader who is at its helm. Do not confuse managing with leading. They need each other, yes, but they're not the same thing. They each have a central role to play, but sequence matters. Begin with managing, and you will find it very hard to introduce the leader mindset. Begin with leadership, and managing can and will and must align with it and become a powerful support. As I've said before, in my view, managing is a peacetime activity, and its behaviors align. We keep things going, we stay on an even keel, we monitor, we track, we check, and then we check again. Management is about stabilization. Leadership is about growth. Management creates short-term safety and a knowable future. Leadership Creates short term risk and an expanding future, future expanding. What do leaders do? Leaders name the horizon. They decide on the horizon and they drive the enterprise in that direction. In visual leadership, they intentionally deploy physical mechanisms, visual formats, and devices to focus that. Do- horizon to make those initial decisions and drive us towards it and they require this of that Uh, i beg your pardon they require this of us okay they use visuality as tools of their trade to make it so and they want us to do it as well they expect it and they know that that is useful in that way the learning is embedded physically because visual devices are physical, visual formats are physical. This is so important. One of the highest leadership directives, and you've heard me say this a number of times, I cannot impress upon you how difficult it is unless you're a leader already, and you've been faced with this. How do I say yes to the few and wait to the many? Well, this is part and parcel of naming the horizon and driving towards it. And when I mean driving, I mean driving, driving, driving. So, what we're going to look at today is the continuation of the story that I ended with in our last episode when I went to Aki break with the Dana Group, Roger Harnersfager, and the Dana group. And we were in that session room with our Japanese hosts at this amazing plant where they changed over eleven machines. A woman a single woman changed over eleven machines in two minutes and ten seconds, But no, hold on. She was fashioning, making her last product while she changed over one touch exchange of dye, OTed. So her changeover of eleven machines was in zero time. took no time at all. Amazing, amazing operational excellence. And when we met with them afterwards, of course, we had many questions, and it just so happened that the first question was a big one. This seemed to be so simple. Please, sir, what what a wonderful plant. Thank you so much for inviting us. Tell me, what is the ratio between supervisors and hourly employees, operators? Uh, we don't have supervisors, was the answer. The gentleman regrouped, the U.S. gentleman regrouped. He said, okay, okay, what is the ratio between managers and uh, operators? We don't have managers. Well, how about between team leads and operators? Well, we don't have team leads either. And so the whole group kind of stopped because... We knew what our colleague was driving at. We didn't know why. The question was being met with such kind of, seemed to be obtuseness. What are you talking about? And we said, we, 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 we don't understand. We said in more words than this, what are you talking about? And our Japanese host, this plant manager of this amazing plant, He said, we don't have any managers or supervisors or team leads. We only have leaders of improvement. He didn't say that much more because it was such a stunning answer that to formulate a question would have taken a lot more brain power than we had at that moment. Except for me, I was astonished at that. That was 1985. Might have been 86, but I think it was 85. And it seeded in me and grew on me. And while I did many, many years, even decades, working with operators and supervisors, niggling in the back of my mind was constantly, what do I do with this incredible language, with this concept of managers supervisors, team leads, all being just one thing, but one thing, leaders of improvement. I was very interested in the management executive level of the company, but I was drawn first by my clients to helping them on the operator level and getting an empowered work culture in place. But as I gained my credentials client by client, and they saw that the operator level was really becoming dazzling part of the company, they would come to me and say, well, you know, basically, what else do you have for me, Gwenny? And I would say, well, you know, if you want to, we can move into visual displays and kind of sort out your schedule, uh, your so-called fixed and firm schedule. And we would start working on that. And they would say, wow, this stuff is really working. Well, what else you got for me? And sooner or later, but about that time, I would say, well, if you want, you and I can start working together. We can start bringing the power of visuality into your executive function, into your leadership. Well, what does that mean? And then I went through my dog and pony show on becoming a leader of improvement to begin with. And then five core visual tools for the executive level and three, four, supervisors. But the identity would shift while we use those tools. And in using those tools, the executive would become a leader of improvement because that would become his obsession. The barracuda is an ambush fish. It's capable of speeds of 25 miles per hour And it is feared by all but sharks and killer whales. It's really something. If confronted by one of those animals, one of those enemies, I should say, and there's no place to hide, the barracuda simply attacks. Whether hunting or escaping, the barracuda is a formidable predator. And I find myself contemplating the barracuda's traits when I consider Much of the discussion, the current discussion on leadership, this becoming a leader of improvement. And right now, I want to disassociate that discussion from a lot of the conversation that is taking place, especially in my country, but I think it's going all the way around the world, that puts great emphasis on the leader's capacity to be values-driven, express humility, not take credit and generally be, or at least be seen to be, a really nice person. I have not only no quarrel with a values-driven leader who expresses humility and is a really nice person, I not only have not a quarrel, I think it's, those are essential characteristics, but the irony is this form of Political correctness, in a time of brutal politics, by the way, is valued above and almost to the exclusion of any other leader-like behavior. I value those traits, but it is so PC, politically correct-centered, that very little is heard of the importance of the leader's determination, single-mindedness, focus, Ability to drive, ability to drive, ability to drive, being super smart, having savvy. No one denies the primacy of kindness, but not at the sacrifice of the business end of a leader's work. But no one is talking about that. So I have to raise the question, don't we need both in our leaders? And of course, my answer is the same as yours, yes. Yes. Let's talk about it. There is course after endless course and book after endless book promoting and teaching and supporting the nice side of leadership. And it's true that a lot of leaders need to learn this. But there's little help in helping us understand and cultivate the non nice side. Notice that I do not use the word not nice side. It's the non-nice side. Nobody wants a mean and growly leader, harsh and demanding and vindictive. Hmm? There's only one way to deal with such a boss, and that is to show them the door or to teach them a new way. So I want to talk about this a little bit before we get to the main purpose of this show today, which is to go through the new job description for becoming a leader of improvement. Because now that we know about that nomenclature, becoming a leader of improvement, what is the job description? What are the elements of that job? Okay? I want to talk about how to cultivate, just for a moment, the business end, the non-nice side of leadership for leaders who are either unduly intense or unduly relaxed, not intense at all. For me, this is one of the same problems. Really, really nice leader, really nice person, I should say, really nice person, can't get anything done. Really not nice person, he gets a lot of things done, she gets a lot of things done, but everybody pays a price. It's the same problem. It's the same problem. And, of course, the remedy, in my view, is learning and using the principles and practices of visual leadership. The Barracuda leader is a man, in my book, in my lexicon, a man or a woman who is always hungry, always looking for lunch. And that hunger is for excellence. And lunch is the next improvement breakthrough, the next jump, preferably a quantum one. You have perhaps met these people, I have. They are genuinely nice human beings, easygoing, balanced, friendly, even sunny, smooth on the outside. But on the inside, on the inside, they are a riot of demand, a riot of demand, a demand for results, for change, for progress. They are barracudas on the inside, unrelenting, savvy, hungry, hungry, always hungry. More often than not, barracuda leaders do not start their careers that way. They are not born to the cloth. They've had to learn to lead and in learning to become leaders, They also have dispelled the myth of natural-born leaders and have shown us this amazing balance point. Kind, accessible, diplomatic, courteous on the outside and on the inside, they are driven. And they enjoy it. They're like a thoroughbred waiting for the race. If you've ever been around thoroughbreds, my father was around thoroughbreds when I was a child. He didn't own them. He bet on them. But we spent a lot of time at the racetrack with his obsession of ruining the family fortune. I mean, really. My mother would go wild, but she had no no say was that that error. But if you've been around um, a thoroughbred, a racehorse, they have a particular quality to them that may be seen as nervousness they are definitely high strung but it is because they are hungry for the race they're there to win they are there for the race you speak to some thoroughbred breeders and they and they'll say this is not a horse this is a champion this is a champion who wants to prove himself again and again and again and the rider is there just to make it legitimate so the race can be won and money can, can come afterwards. But when you see a thoroughbred, he is running to wind, and he is running to feel the wind in his mane, to feel that stride, to feel the strength, to feel the nature of who he is express itself fully, fully. That is the pleasure, and that is the race. Mm -hmm. And when I meet leaders like Kurt Williams from Parker Hannafin, Larry Pike from Lockheed Martin, and others, when I meet them, they have that quality, that quality of holding back and being extremely courteous, but wanting to get to the race part of the pleasure of their day. Mm -hmm. It's cultivated. It's learned. And the only way you can learn that is to get control over your corner of the world. If you're not in control, you're not confident. You don't know, and you don't know enough. So I want to mention those things as we finally get into some uh, actual content about this Becoming a Leader of Improvement. So, these leaders of improvement have a single focus, and it is balanced by an approachable outside and a passionate inside. One of the ways I like to talk about the new job description, which we're going to get to now, the new job description, we're going to separate them into a job description for executives and a job description for supervisors, managers is to, if you want to do this, uh, you know, after we say goodbye today, that would be fun, or put the uh, radio show on hold if you're listening to the podcast, and write down, what is work for me? What, w- what is work for me? What is my work? You can write it down as though it is a job description that you, you're going to put in the newspaper to find your replacement this is a nice perspective to have. Just kind of move away from um, getting too entangled on commenting on your own work. And write your job description for your replacement. Write it down. And, you know, in its gory details. I come in in the morning and I do this and then I do that and then I do it again and then I do this and I do that and then I do that again. And this is what my day is like like, and find your replacement by by identifying what is work for you. While you're at it in this exercise, identify your value field. That will be very interesting. Where is it, and when is it that you add value? Where is that place? I want to tell you it's not at your desk. Hmm? Where is it? It's rarely at your desk. Think about that as well. All right. Let's talk about the job description itself, the elements of the job description. And as I talk about this, which is a a kind of central part of this um, process of becoming a leader of improvement, think about what this job description would be for you or do for you or represent for you if you wanted to adopt it it's a behavior-based model identify the parts that you're currently doing but also take a look at what would happen if you were doing all of these things there'll be seven elements and there's seven elements that are it's like a tile seven tiles with a central tile It's a hexagon, hexagon, seven hexagons, one in the middle. So a hexagon is a six-sided geometric form. And with one in the middle, the other six will populate around them. And when I begin this description, we'll begin at noon and we'll end at noon. We'll start at noon and end at midnight. (laughs) We'll go through the cycle of six. Let's start with the executive job description, the new one, the one that fulfills the requirements of becoming a leader of improvement on the executive level. And let us say right now that job description could be an old-fashioned job description of the boss, the head honcho the big guy, the head of the snake. And it might, that central tile, the one in the middle, it might say, demand and control. That's my name, demand and control. Used to be called command and control in the military. Demand and control. How is it described? Like this. Insist on and get actions and responses because of your position or position of authority. Demand and control, insist on and get, actions and responses because of your position, because of your authority. So we're going to replace that in this leadership model by changing that central anchor, hexagon, the one, the tile in the middle, and we're going to put in there. We're going to remove demand and control. And we're going to put in its place, lead. This is for executives. It's interesting because as I've worked this out over the years, and I, as I've validated it, it's been validated, 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 vetted all the time. For the supervisor manager, the central previous. Old-fashioned way of doing it was is called to manage, and that's replaced by a tile called improve. But for the executive, lead is the anchor mechanism, and then there are six tiles around that. And the six tiles, I'll just name them now, and then I'll give them a little bit more um, definition, a lot more definition. Lead, I define, this is for executives in becoming a leader of improvement. Define the vision, share the vision, resource the vision, and go first. Define the vision, share the vision, resource the vision, vision, and go first. That's the definition of lead. To that end, because we're in a visual leadership model, We then use a powerful tool to help us do just that, to define and to share and to resource. And that tool is called the Operation Systems Improvement Template, which I'll talk about in a later show. But there is a tool for each of these, and that is the main tool for deciding on the direction, deciding on the horizon. Okay. So we're already moving away from managing and into leading. Lead is the anchor element, one of the seven behavioral elements that describe and define the new executive. So the center is lead, twelve o'clock, we're going to go around, twelve o'clock, decide. One o'clock, align. 4 o'clock, inspire. 6 o'clock, drive. 8 o'clock, verify. 10 o'clock, grow. Those are the seven elements. Lead, decide, align, inspire, drive, verify, grow for the executive. Man, it works like crazy. It is a perfect fit with the visual tools that support it. The second element of deciding is defined as search out, formulate, and resource the right direction and actions for improving the company. Mm -hmm. And the way that we do that is we continue to use the house to identify that. I have a particular house, the Operation Systems Improvement Template, but if you use the Toyota house, that will help you. The next is to align. To align, such an elusive outcome. How do you get five people? How do you get 500 people? How do you get 5,000 people to consent to go in the same direction? Because wherever they're going now without specific alignment activity, they are going in a direction that they only think is right that feels right, and they will keep doing it until they're adjusted, corrected, changed, or validated. To align means to connect and blend different ideas about change and growth so the company can move forward as one. It's very important. How do you get those arrows, all those folks who are peddling, To pedal in the same direction. Because if you look at the arrows, you may have seen this kind of a construct, this kind of an image. You'll have a whole page full of arrows, but they're all pointing in different directions. And whoever each arrow represents, you can be sure that that person is pedaling and pedaling fast and sometimes in the opposite direction of you. And you're in the opposite direction of someone else. And all these arrows are pointing in all different directions until the alignment happens because of the boss. Alignment begins on the senior management level through another favorite tool of mine. I actually didn't invent it. This came from Japan. It's called the X-Type Matrix. And many of you are groaning right now saying, oh no, no, not that. Oh, anything but that. And yet I find it to be a, a completely remarkable tool. It has been badly taught and badly used and not understood. But man oh man, I haven't found anything better. And it's easy. There's nothing hard about this. It's a learning curve, not just to make it, but to actually do it, but it will change everything. And so we're at we're at four o'clock. Lead, decide, align, four o'clock, inspire which is to stimulate an appetite for excellence in values, behavior, and outcome. Mm, I think I did a really good job on that one. Stimulate an appetite for excellence in values, behavior, and outcome. So Vance Packard in the 1950s, he did a lot of work on leadership. And this is a misquote. This is what he almost said. Leadership appears to be the art of getting others to do something you are convinced should be done. That's the misquote. Leadership appears to be the art of getting others to do something you are convinced should be done. That's not what he said. What he said had two more words to it, and they're very important, pivotal two words. Leadership appears to be the art of getting others to want to do something you are convinced should be done that's what inspire does to give people the want part of aligning with you the want part and for me churchill was the guy who did it superbly well he had an impossible situation in in the fall of 1941 the times were desperate This was before the Americans entered World War II, which happened in December of that year after Pearl Harbor. Great Britain was completely on its own. Poland, France, Czechoslovakia, the Netherlands, Belgium had all fallen under Hitler's blitzkrieg. It was all lost. All was lost. All was lost. And then there was Churchill, who said to that nation to never give up? He actually said never give in. He said, never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing. Great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never give give in. Mm? He inspired the nation, he kept the world together while the United States was making up its mind. It's really making up its mind about how to get into the war. But that was a very, very tricky political and societal issue. You will develop, as you exercise these muscles, this compelling need to connect, to inspire as part of your leadership approach. You will want to do that. You will go out and seek for validation and seek for alignment through inspiration. This will become an important part of you as a leader. You can learn this. Yes, you should go to Toastmasters. Yes, you should learn to read the room and put a good speech together. This will help you enormously. Toastmasters is such a great organization We send hundreds and hundreds of operators and trainers to Toastmasters all over the world because if you don't have platform skills, that will give you a big jump up on becoming capable. And organizations need capable speakers. So you can learn this too. But in following this leadership model, you'll know why you're doing it. And that will help you do it even more with more conviction and more success. So you have done, you're up to now, you're ready. In your commitment to lead, in your quest to become a leader of improvement, you have learned how to decide, how to say yes to the few and wait to the many, how to align those decisions across the organization so people are also saying yes. You are learning how to inspire people to take that alignment and operationalize it. And at 6 o'clock, you are now ready to drive. Driving means to focus and steer the enterprise into its improved future and stay the course. It means to focus and steer. You have to stay alert to it. You have to keep your eye on the road. You have to keep your eye on the horizon. You stay the course and the organization moves to its improved future, the one that you have designated. You have decided on the horizon. And this, you know, well, let me not go down that rabbit hole. I'm going to resist. There are wonderful tools for doing that amongst them. Metrics, stacked metrics, and your operations roadmap. We'll go into that in some detail uh, as we um, move through our leadership series, and then the ultimate piece for driving is the war room. It's truly a leadership room. It is far beyond an obeya room. The Obeya is information. It's useful to have it co-located. It's useful to use those walls in order to see and to understand. But a war room, a war room is. Um, <laughs> You know, I want to say it has a lethal purpose, but I'll get into so much trouble. <laughs> it has a very strong purpose. It has a very strong purpose. That's where your strategy gets worked out. That's where you see it behave. And I would be I would be sorry not to quote to you Rick Page's definition of strategy from his wonderful book it's on sale now on amazon for five bucks get it it's so great a little book it's called hope is not a strategy five bucks came out about 10 years ago has a lot of great things in it but perhaps my favorite is uh talking about strategy as leadership and it goes like this hope is not a strategy hope is not a strategy a system is not a strategy the essence of strategy is allocating resources to the place and time that best exploits your competitor's weakness. Hmm? Hope is not a strategy. A system is not a strategy. The essence of strategy is allocating resources to the place and time that best exploits your competitor's weakness. Period. <laughs> this is... A little bit of a hard thing to sell when you're in a factory. But only for a moment. You make a few adjustments and you say, even if you're a, a tier one supplier and you're a captive, you're a dedicated resource to some big OEM, how are you going to find your competitor's weakness when you really don't have a competitor? You're already bought. Mm? But using that Wonderful definition the essence of a strategy when you're a plant manager can really open up new avenues new windows new possibilities i have found it to be very exciting all right better move along got a couple more minutes and i'd like to go complete So that's the driving part at 6. At 8 o'clock, we have verify. Use measures. Use your metric systems to assess the validity of your decisions and the effectiveness of your actions. Verify. Use your metrics in this way. You will get much more economical about your metrics if you know why you're using them. You're using them to assess the validity of your decisions. If you're not making decisions you're managing, <laughs> you're not leading, you're managing, and then you have all the metrics you want, 30, 40 different kinds of metrics, go swimming. <laughs> and finally, at 10 o'clock, grow. That is the seventh element of becoming of a leader on an executive level, to grow, to expand and strengthen and raise the value of the enterprise now and in the future. Expand, strengthen, raise the value of the enterprise now and in the future. Not just increased profit, but increased profit margin. How fun is that? So that those are the elements of the job description for an executive within the model of visual leadership the beginning part where we are identifying a new job description, the elements of a new job description, a position description for executive leader. Hmm? I'd like you to think about these things and ask yourself, what part of what we discussed today do I already do? And do I do it well to my satisfaction, your satisfaction? What part of what we discussed today would be something new, new for me? for you, are you interested in that new part? Why or why not? Maybe somebody else can listen to the show and you can talk about this together. Make comment and raise questions and think about this for yourself. I'm saying to you, I, Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm saying to you, this stuff is real. It's doable. It is becoming known technology. I have seen the success of it repeatedly. Story after story, Person after person, Edgardo, Miguel, I'm working with Mexican companies right now. Incredible workforce too, incredible heart, incredible uh, respect for knowledge and eagerness to learn and to change and to grow. Jorge, Jorge, oh my goodness, just wonderful personal growth so that the company benefits and has this whole other avenue of contribution and clarity. They're becoming leaders of improvement. Hortado, Jorge Hortado, another Jorge. Incredible. Eduardo, Lalo, another person, another Eduardo. These are alive. This is a living mechanism for change. This is not theoretical. It is true, my laboratory are these, is this com- are these companies. I see what works and what doesn't work, and what begets and what needs to do better. So I refine the model by my wonderful work with companies. But the message here is that you can move. Manage where you must and lead everywhere else. Lead because you're the thoroughbred. You're the thoroughbred in the making. You want to feel the wind in your mane as you speed to the finish line. As you win, you want to feel this. I want to encourage you to think about these things, to take them quite seriously, and maybe even to say, gee, I want that. I want one like that. It's not that hard. It does take time. It does take a model. It does take a requirement that you exercise, you find and exercise these muscles. Deciding, deciding to do it. You could just decide to undertake this. My book isn't out yet, so I can't offer you much more detail without just kind of writing the book and reading it as part of the um, Visual Workplace Radio. I'd like to do that. Planning to start the book in December. I think it will be an important one. The next time we meet, we'll work that through for supervisors what does that mean for supervisor-manager to become a leader of improvement? What is it that that we did previously, and what is the difference that we're going to do now? What are the tools, the visual tools that support that, that ground it, makes it concrete and specific, that grows in information and in clarity as you grow? We'll talk about that in the next show. So, in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. I really Love knowing that you're out there listening. We're kind of accumulating a, fo- a following uh, in strange places around the world. No- nonetheless, very happy. And in the United States as well. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm wishing you a very rewarding and completely satisfying journey to wherever you're going. Let that also be the visual workplace. And enjoy yourself as you become a visual thinker or as you exercise those assets as a visual thinker now let the workplace speak thank you for joining us this week at visual workplace radio tune in for another episode next tuesday at 1 p.m eastern time 10 a.m pacific with your host dr gwendolyn galsworth on the voice america business channel let the workplace speak